Let us again hear the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. One of the contemporary scholars who has been most helpful to me as a Christian and as a student of Scripture, is Professor John Frame. After graduation from Princeton, he went to Westminster Seminary, where he studied under Van Til and Murray. He earned a master's from Yale, but never finished the doctoral program at New Haven. His doctorate is an honorary degree, but in the case of John Frame, fully deserved, if not more than deserved. Professor Frame, by the way, is a member of the same Presbyterian church in Orlando where our own Carol Arnold were. As you read John Frame, even if you have to delay reading him, some of you might not get around to it next week, but eventually, maybe you'll read some of John Frame, and as you do, you'll find him frequently referring to a triad. That is a line of thought or an objective reality that reflects a threeness. He will even write, maybe in a footnote, another triad. Professor Frame, for example, in discussing knowledge, tells his readers that we are aiming to know, but aiming to know in three spheres. We want to know God, we want to know ourselves. We want to know everything outside of ourselves and of God. This is one of John Frame's triads. But here is the important foundation of John Frame's excessive preoccupation with triads. And I'm not accusing him of anything that he does, acknowledge, he does not acknowledge himself. He will sometimes say, okay, another triad, but I am undeterred, he will say, and he comes up with another one. He admits that he might be a bit extreme in finding triads. But John Frame's thought, he's persuaded that the world of created reality is marked by triads because that whole world comes from the God who is one in three and three in one. So frequently, because of the threeness and the oneness of our God. 
All of this has been turning in my mind in recent days as we come to the closing verses of Ephesians 1 this evening, where Paul's statement about the exaltation of Christ has three very clear points. Of course, we're not to assume that a preacher is being unfaithful or misguided if his sermon has two points or six points. Remember, at Sinai, God spoke his ten words. And the wise man tells us that there are six things, even seven things, that the Lord hates. Old covenant Israel was divided into 12 tribes. Christ had 12 apostles. And then Paul reduces the whole human family to the headship of the first Adam and the second Adam. But John Frame is on to something important when he identifies various triads within the created order and ties them to the being of God. Now the apostle has prayed in this prayer that we would know three things. He's prayed that we would know more of our hope. He's prayed that we would know more of the inheritance which God makes of us for himself. And he's prayed that we would then know more of the power of God. But it's significant that Paul does not give an abstract or philosophical description of the power of God. No, my friends, he rather launches into a cogent description of the display of God's power in the raising of Christ from the dead and the accompanying enthroning of Christ at the right hand of God the Father. Note verse 20. This power that I want you to know is what he, Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And I'm going to pause right here. This is an early pause. And acknowledge something that uh, might be turning in your mind. And if it's not turning in your mind right now, uh, maybe seven or eight minutes uh, into what we're talking about, it would come to your mind. I wonder if it's possible that someone could read this and say, well, I know the Lord's been working in my life. I mean, there are things that He's accomplished that only He could accomplish, and I'm grateful for the way the Lord has been working in me, but, but the same power that raised Christ from the dead? The same power that exalted Christ to the right hand of God? That much power? Whew, Pastor Randy, let, let me think about that a little bit. Well, it's easy. But now, the three lines of thought regarding the exaltation of Christ. The apostle sets clearly before us the agent of the exaltation, the extent of the exaltation, and the purpose of the exaltation of Christ. First of all, then, the agent. And it's clear from verse 17 that God the Father is the agent of this grand, accomplished event of raising and exalting Christ. Now, we know, brothers and sisters, that we never make too much of the cross, do we? There's never too much said, too much desire to grasp and to lift up the cross of our Lord. We, we understand why Paul would say, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus. But it's my best judgment that we can 
make too little of the resurrection of our Lord. We would never be saved by a crucified Christ who remained in the tomb. Never. Let me just remind you of one of the divine purposes of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, again an act of God the Father, is God's assured testimony that he has fully accepted the death of Christ for the full payment of our sins. Someone has said that the resurrection of Christ is God the Father's amen to the statement and declaration that Christ made on the cross when he said, it is finished. It is finished. I've done all the work necessary to redeem sinners. And God the Father says, amen, and demonstrates that Christ has fully paid the debt of all of our sins by raising his son and exalting him to his right hand. And perhaps someone this evening will be given an accurate understanding of the self, of, of yourself, and you'll begin to grasp the greatness of your sins. And maybe you'll begin to ask, how can God ever forgive all these sins? Can they, can they all be forgiven, put away by a righteous God just because of what Christ did on the cross for people like me? And to that sincere question, my friend, God has given a clear answer. And his answer is yes. Yes, what Christ has done is sufficient to take away all of our sins. The Father says, your sins are forgiven. And I show you this by raising my son from the dead and welcoming him into heaven. The Father says, my son is already here in heaven and you trust him and he'll get you here. That's the assurance of the resurrection and exaltation of our Lord. The agent is God the Father. Secondly, the apostle sets before us the extent of the exaltation of Christ. Note the way verse 21 begins. Far above. Now whatever is going to follow, whatever is going to follow far above, it's clear that the apostle is not suggesting that Christ has just barely accomplished something. That's not what he's going to say. No, recall his high priestly prayer, my friends, and now, Father, glorify me with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I'm returning, and I'm, ex I'm expecting to enter into a glory that is the same as what I enjoyed with you before I ever came into the world. We're going to sing tonight, the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. But what are the powers that Christ rules over? What's the apostle intend for us to understand? Look at verse 21. Far above all four terms, rule, authority, power, dominion. Now, 
There's much debate among the commentators as to the precise force of these terms. They're certainly spiritual powers, not earthly powers. The apostle isn't concerned here to say, well, all those, all those bad guys, you know, running things down on earth, they're, they're subject to Christ. That's not the point. He's talking here about spiritual powers. But when the parallel references in Colossians and other Pauline texts are considered, it's clear that these terms are used for both evil and good spiritual beings, demons and angels, if you will. Furthermore, Paul's language in verse 21b uh, seems to not exclude any kind of spiritual power. Look, look at the second part of verse 21. Every name that is named, not only in this age or the age to come. So there is a breadth of spiritual beings that Paul has in view. However, and here's a, a big however, my best present judgment, dear people, is that the emphasis of verse 21 is on our Lord's rule over hostile spiritual powers. Those wicked spirits that wage war against the church and against every genuine Christian believer. And I have two reasons for my conclusion that the emphasis here is on Christ's rule over demonic powers. One, further reference to these powers in Ephesians places the emphasis on those wicked spiritual powers. Chapter 6, verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present spiritual darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's the emphasis in Ephesians. And the second reason I have for concluding that the emphasis here is on Christ's rule, his authority over evil spiritual powers, is because Paul is clearly in our passage drawing from Psalm 110. You know, that's the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. The 110th Psalm is quoted more often than any other text in the Old Testament. But listen to what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, ruled in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Our Lord is exalted over these wicked powers. Now, note what Paul goes on to say, again, in the second half of verse 21. He says he's exalted over every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. What's the point? Every name that is named. Well, the name of God, as perhaps you understand, the name of God is usually just a reference to God's character. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Well, what does that mean? That there's something magical about the letters of Lord? No, it's, it's a reference to God himself. 
God is a strong tower for his people. But here in our text, there's, there's an expansion of the idea of name. Every, every name, every name that is named. And I think there's probably some help. There's probably some help in understanding this in that uh, vivid, dramatic scene that some of you, I'm sure, have uh, read about as children. Somebody told this story of Elijah on the mountain. Uh, Elijah says, hey, it's time, it's time that we find out who God is. Come on now, we're going to have a contest. Come on, get your prophets of Baal. And they start chanting and, you know, dancing around the altar and even cutting themselves. And uh, as I, uh, Elijah has a wonderful gift of sarcasm as he speaks to these men. But then listen to what he says. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God. Your God has a name. Go ahead. You call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire he is God, and all the people answered, it's well spoken. Every name that is named, and what the apostle is saying in our text, dear people, is any of it, Christ rules over all of them. That's what our text is saying. Now, I want to pause here and make some application and Maybe some of what should be practically suggested to us is even beginning to turn in some of your minds. And again, I have three words of application. Number one, Ephesians 1.21 demands that we really believe what it says. My friend, how do you perceive the world in which we're now living? You say, well, it's wicked and evil. Yes, it is. You say, it's hostile to God and to everything that's good. Yes, it is. You say, the devil and demonic powers are at work in the world. Yes, they are. Ephesians 6, 12 is not figurative language. But the world is not completely out of control. Life is not simply the convergence of all sorts of trouble and weakness and confusion and sin and evil. Over all of this, as perplexing as it may seem, as overwhelmed as we may feel at times from this wash of evil over our whole society, brothers and sisters, there is the exalted King of glory who sits upon the highest throne of heaven and those wicked powers are under his control. We must believe this. Secondly, Ephesians 1.21 should give us the strongest hope as we think accurately about the present 
and frame our views of the future. We discussed briefly our Christian hope in a recent sermon from this passage. But how we view the present exaltation of Christ should strengthen our views of the future, at least of the ultimate future. You see, the Bible gives us no assurance that our, our republic is going to survive. Sometimes when I listen to uh, Christians, Christians in our day who are, who are attempting to influence the political world and they're part of some organization or some endeavor in Washington or Richmond, sometimes I get the impression that it's being driven by this assumption that that America, America just must be preserved. And, 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 if, and if this country is not preserved, then, then what's going to happen? My friend, God could open, could open the continental United States and wash our whole nation into the sea, and God would preserve his people and finish his purposes for this world. Jesus Christ will continue to rule. And all that great multitude of elect sinners will be brought into his fold. And Christ will then return in full glory at the end of this age. And then thirdly, Ephesians 1.21 surely reminds us of who are our real enemies. Our real enemies are these wicked spiritual forces the intellectuals and the big talkers of our day, they've all got it figured out, don't they? The intellectuals know that the great problems in the world are ignorance or religious bigotry or systemic poverty. And the big talkers, they've got it all figured out for sure. Rush Limbaugh tells us that the real problems are the liberals and the Trump haters. And Chris Cuomo, on the other network, tells us that uh, the, the problems are the narrow-minded conservatives who were stupid enough to put Trump in the White House. They got it all figured out. And they're all wrong. All of them are wrong. The great enemies of the welfare of human beings are those wicked spiritual beings that Paul names here and he tells us Jesus Christ reigns over all of them. This is why Luther referred to the devil as God's devil. You know, Luther loved to use shocking language, but he's right on target. God has control of even Satan himself. Isn't that one of the wonderful lessons of the book of Job? The sons of God appear before God and, and uh, Satan appears among them. And, uh, and it's, not, it's not that Satan, you know, issues this challenge to God. God issues the challenge. God says, have you considered my servant Job, Satan, and there's nobody like him? Well, what about him? Well, of course, a battle starts, doesn't it? a huge conflict 
over the life of Job, and Job doesn't get all the insight into it, but the wonderful message is that the same Lord who was reigning at the time that Job was being tested on the earth, he's still reigning, and now his exalted reign is manifested in the completed redeeming work of his own beloved son who came in the fullness of time. So we've considered the agent in Christ's exaltation, the extent of the exaltation. But now thirdly, consider with me the purpose of this exaltation. And it's very clear. The purpose of this is the good of the church. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now, there are actually more than three points that I was tempted to try to work out with you here, but for the sake of time, we're going to limit ourselves to just three points of explanation and application of this matter of Christ being the head of his church, the body, and ruling for the sake of his church. Number one, Paul's chosen language magnifies for us the necessary place of the church in the purpose of God. The church is his body, and we need not be stumped by how Paul arrived at this dramatic terminology because from his first encounter with the exalted Christ, he will have learned this. Why? Because when the exalted Christ spoke to him, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You you think you're just going after these people over in some part of, of the land because they've taken my name? No, you're persecuting me. But more importantly, this dramatic language means that the church is indispensable to the, to the divine person, pardon me, to the divine purpose. Listen again to the language of our Lord in John 17. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those <coughs> whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And then he says this, and I am no longer in the world. Now, remember, there are statements in the Bible that we take seriously, and we understand them, but we want to understand them in the context of all of Scripture. And obviously, this is not an absolute statement the Lord is making. When we gathered this morning for worship, dear people, was Christ among us? Yes. Amen? Do we trust that Christ is with us tonight? Yes. And yet, in one sense, Jesus says, Father, I am no longer in the world. There is a sense in which I'm going to be out of here. But these are in the world. Ah. These, my own, are in the world. They're staying here. 
Saying that another way, it means that by definition, the church is to be a missional force. Christ was sent into the world to bring salvation to the world. And in one vital sense, he's no longer here, but he is here. He's here in the midst of people like us gathered here this evening. And please, as we talk about this language at the end of Ephesians 1, the church which is his body, please, brothers and sisters, do not be misled by some unfortunate language that often shows up among Christians when they start talking about the one true church. You ever hear that? There's one true church. There is one universal church. There is one body of people made up of all those that Christ has redeemed and calls to himself, but there are many true churches. Many true churches that make up that one universal church, Grace Church, that gathers on Edgewood Street in Roanoke, Virginia, is a true church, and so is Cave Spring Baptist, and so is Christ the King Presbyterian, and so is St. John Lutheran, and so is City Light Church. Our Lord, is committed to his church. You know, it's very common in our day to hear people say, I'm really into Jesus, but I'm not, I'm not into the church. Christianity today, not too long ago, had a whole issue, whole issue given over to people giving their testimony as to how they were really into Jesus, but just weren't into the church. Where does that kind of thinking come from? It doesn't come from the scriptures. It doesn't come from the apostles. The church, which is his body. The chosen language reminds us of how necessary the church is. Secondly, Paul's chosen language here challenges and divides the best of commentators. More specifically, what does Paul mean when he writes that the church is the fullness of him? Look at the language. He's the head over all things to the church, which is, which is his body. And the church is the fullness of him. The church is the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? Well, Let's start with a negative. Paul certainly does not mean that there's something personally lacking in Christ that the church provides. It isn't that the exalted Christ is somehow not all that he is as the exalted Christ without the church. That's not what Paul is saying. No, what must be clear is that the church receives from Christ all that Christ has to offer. It's not a matter of the church giving to Christ. It's a matter of Christ giving to the church, and the church receives the fullness of Christ in this sense. The church receives the fullness of Christ in the sense that the church is given everything that Christ has to offer as the mediator. 
Everything that the church, everything that Christ was given from God the Father to be the mediator between God and man, all that blessing, it's poured out on His church. Does the church need knowledge? Yes, Christ provides it. Does the church need humility? Oh, yes, we do. Jesus brings that into our midst. Does the church need power? Yes, it comes from Christ. Do we need courage, self-denial, vision? Do we need spiritual hunger and thirst? Yes, all those things we desperately need. And Christ is committed to providing all that we need. He is the fullness of Him. Everything that Christ has to offer, the church receives. And, my friends, it means, it means when we're aware, when we become aware as a church of something we don't have, there's only one place to get it. And it's not in a new program. You know, Julie and I, um, several months ago, as part of our golden anniversary celebration, we, um, uh, we, we were in uh, Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina. And um, I usually sneak out of the room, you know, try to not wake my wife up. And one morning I snuck out of the room, made my way down to a Starbucks coffee shop that was in the bottom of this hotel we were staying in. And, uh, and there was a man that walked in uh, one morning to the coffee shop. I was sitting there reading my Bible, and he walked over and he said, uh, all the wisdom you'll ever need is in that book. I said, amen, brother, it sure is. I'm trying to get more of it this morning. This man was a, is a believer, lives here in the Roanoke Valley. And uh, he and I have remained in communication. We occasionally will exchange an email. We had lunch together one time. A genuine Christian man, really a delight to know this brother. And when I asked him about his church connection, he gave me a very sad story, a, 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 the story of a church that was in decline, decline, more decline, and the leadership was in a panic. What are we going to do? How are we going to turn things around and get people more interested to come to church? If the Bible doesn't have answers for those kinds of questions, then we ought to stop carrying our Bibles on Sunday morning. The church is His body. He provides for the church everything that the church will ever need. Now, uh, there's a third application that I had prepared on paper that I'm not going to try to get through this evening. But, but I'll, I'll give you the heading. Paul's chosen language here calls us to engage in some humble discrimination in how we define the church which is his body. That's what the text says, the church, which is his body. And the text demands that we engage in humble 
discrimination in how we understand that. Does this mean that every group of people that take the word church to themselves and put up a sign out front that that's a church? Does it mean that the Roman Catholic Church is an expression of what the Apostle is talking about in our passage? How do we understand this reference to the church, which is his body? And I have five responses to that, but we're going to leave that, and I'll decide before I get back from Kenya whether those five responses are worthy of consideration. But I want to close by going back to that question that we anticipated near the beginning of our time this evening when I began speaking about the divine power that raised Christ from the dead and I anticipated someone thinking or saying, well, I don't see that kind of power in my life. Yes, the Lord's been doing some good things in my life, but but the kind of power that left a tomb empty on resurrection morning? No, it's less impressive than that. I understand that response. I understand it too well because I'm not a stranger to that kind of response. Resurrection power, where is it? Where was it last Thursday when I did something stupid and selfish? I understand, but I want to respond in two ways. Number one, remember, my friend, what genuine conversion is. It's not a little bit, a little bit of cooperation with grace. It's, it's not God giving you a nudge and then you responding to his nudge. Genuine conversion is the raising of the dead. And that's what Paul goes on to say in chapter 2. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, he's made alive with Christ. And if we're here tonight and our hearts are responding in faith to the gospel and we're saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for keeping me up to this point. And Lord, I don't want to ever let you go. You're my Savior. You're the only one that could ever rescue me from my sin. Brother, sister, those are the expressions of genuine faith now. And those things come from resurrection power. And then, this grand work of the resurrected enthroned Christ is not yet finished. He hasn't yet finished the work, but he will. Because Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. 
We're going to sing a hymn in closing. I want to read the text of the hymn, and we're going to use a familiar tune, a much more familiar tune in singing the hymn this evening. It's a hymn of Thomas Kelly, a Presbyterian Irish minister. It's in the old Trinity hymnal. Here is the text. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. The highest place that heaven affords is his, is his by right, the King of kings and Lord of lords and heaven's eternal light. The joy of all who dwell above, the joy of all below, to whom he manifests his love and grants his name to know. To them the cross with all its shame, with all its grace is given, their name an everlasting name, their joy the joy of heaven. They suffer with their Lord below, they reign with him above, their profit and their joy to know the mystery of his love. The cross he bore is life and health, though shame and death to him, his people's hope, his people's wealth, their everlasting theme. Well, Andy and Diana are going to be helping us with a, with a familiar tune, and we have the text. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs> 